Jimmy Carter, but I love the political life. I loved it. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter has died at age 96. We'll remember her life and legacy for Sunday, November 19th. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Also on the show, Pope Francis says he's headed to the upcoming U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai to pressure leaders gathered there to step up their efforts to curb global temperature increases. I think he's hoping that this will kind of elevate what he has already said and been saying for many years, but with a personal appearance in Dubai. We'll look at how the latest move fits into Francis's climate activism and comedian Duncan Trussell on the big questions like reincarnation. Who wants to be a tree? Are you kidding? You want to be some immobile thing that people use as firewood? No thanks. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter has died. She was 96 years old. Jess Mador from member station WABE in Atlanta has more. The Carter Center says former First Lady Rosalind Carter died with family by her side at home in Plains, Georgia. Carter was married to former President Jimmy Carter for 77 years. When they left the White House, Rosalind Carter co-founded the Atlanta-based Carter Center with her husband. The institution served as a final home base for Carter's lifelong commitment to mental health advocacy, work for which Rosalind Carter is celebrated around the world as a trailblazer. She's survived by former President Jimmy Carter, who's 99 years old, her children, Jack, Chip, Jeff, and Amy, 11 grandchildren, and 14 great-grandchildren. For NPR News, I'm Jess Mador in Atlanta. Palestinian health officials say 31 very sick premature babies have been safely evacuated from Gaza's biggest hospital. Israel has taken control of the facility and is searching the premises for evidence of a Hamas command center underneath it. And Piers Lauren Freyer has more from Tel Aviv. An Israeli military spokesperson says more than 100 Hamas militants have been apprehended in Gaza and transferred to Israel for questioning. Israel's military also released GoPro camera footage of what it called a terrorist tunnel discovered under El Shifa Hospital. It's 55 yards long and buried 10 yards underground with a blast-proof door and firing hole. NPR could not independently verify the video. Gaza health officials say more than 12,000 people have been killed in Israeli airstrikes and gun battles since the start of the war. Israel says it's trying to destroy Hamas and rescue some 240 hostages that the group is holding. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Hackers have found an unusual way to get companies to pay for ransom data. File a complaint with the Securities and Exchange Commission. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more. A criminal ransomware group that goes by Alfie or Black Cat recently revealed that they had hacked into Meridian Link, a financial services company that originates loans. But when the hackers demanded a ransom in exchange for its files back, the company didn't respond. As a result, the hackers decided to file a formal complaint with the SEC, alleging that Meridian Link failed to report what they argued was a material incident within four days of learning about it. While criminals making use of regulatory requirements might seem ironic, it reveals the extent to which ransomware as an industry has been professionalized. It also demonstrates how tools meant to improve corporate security might be abused. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Governor Maura Healey and Attorney General Andrea Campbell will outline a plan tomorrow to address acts of hate in Massachusetts. The Justice Department reports there were 477 hate crimes in the state last year. An Anti-Defamation League report found anti-Semitic and white supremacist propaganda fueled a 30% increase in hate crimes between 2021 and 2022. Healthcare advocates are criticizing a state report ordered by Governor Healy in response to the closing of a hospital's maternity ward. The advocates say the report does not provide clear strategy to stop the closure of additional facilities. In September, UMass Memorial Medical Center closed its birthing center in Lemonster, despite the state calling the center an essential service. The State Department of Public Health said it did not have the authority to prevent the closure. Boston Bruin Milan Lucic will be arraigned tomorrow in Boston Municipal Court on an assault and battery charge. News outlets are reporting police were called to his Boston apartment early yesterday because of a report of domestic violence. Boston police have not commented. Bruins coach Jim Montgomery says the team is providing support to the player and his family. We're aware of uh, the Luch situation, and as an organization, it's something we take extremely seriously. The Bruins say that Lucic is on indefinite leave of absence from the team. The Celtics take on the Grizzlies in Memphis tonight, and uh, bundle up. Chance of an isolated shower overnight with temperatures dropping into the 30s. Sunny skies tomorrow, but temps only in the upper 30s. And then mostly sunny, low 40s on Tuesday. In Boston now, it is 46 degrees. Funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. I'm sorry that I have to lead this off with a, a sad announcement. Um, our former First Lady Rosalind Carter has just passed. That was First Lady Jill Biden speaking to military families in Virginia today. Rosalind Carter was 96 years old. She died this afternoon at her homes in Plains, Georgia, surrounded by her family. Carter was First Lady from 1977 to 1981 and one of her husband's closest advisors. She spoke to All Things Considered back in 1984. I don't think I'm smarter than Jimmy Carter, but I love the political life. I loved it. I like the intrigue and it's and and having one election, um, people who really support you in the next election will be your opponents, and the ones who are your opponents will be your supporters. I just like the whole, I like all of it. I like getting out and meeting people and talking with them and learning the country. It was just fascinating to me. I miss it. Longtime PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff covered the Carter White House and got to know Rosalind Carter over the years. Judy, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. In a statement today, President Carter said, Rosalind was my equal partner in everything I ever accomplished. I mean, they were married for more than three quarters of a century, but that idea of a partnership was especially true when Carter was in the White House, wasn't it? 
It was, Scott, and I, I actually go back even uh, farther than the White House. I, One of my first assignments as a reporter starting out in Atlanta uh, was to cover the Carter candidacy for governor in 1970. And even back then, he and Rosalind Carter were, uh, were they were a, a tight pair. Uh, they didn't do everything together, but he consulted with her on everything. And she was, it was very much the two of them on that journey uh, that started uh, all those decades ago. That that sense of a love of politics that we just heard from her, could you sense that on the campaign trail in the White House and the governor's office? Well, I would say not in the beginning. When I, when I first met her, he had run for governor four years earlier and it, it hadn't made it. And by 1970, she had a little practice, but she still it still was something she didn't love to do. She wrote much later about how it was it was an ordeal for her, but she grew to love it. She grew to be someone who relished that role. And yes, as you just heard in her voice and what she said in that interview uh, to NPR, that when he lost the presidency and they went back to Georgia, uh, she was very disappointed, even probably even more disappointed than he was. Of course, she got over it. Yeah. They had they had a much richer life to live ahead of them. Uh, but but that was a telling comment. Any any specific places that that her partnership with Carter, her deep involvement in his presidency left its mark on the administration, on its policies? Well, there would be several. I mean, I covered a trip that she made. It was history making for the first time a first lady traveled overseas to visit a number of foreign countries and meet with heads of state. Uh, heads of government on behalf of the president. She made this trip to Latin America. I think it was seven different countries. Mm -hmm. And no one expected her. uh, A lot of people didn't expect her to do well. She ended up uh, doing quite well in conveying his message. And these were some tough conversations. But I would say the thing that most I remember most is Camp David, the Camp David Accord. She was there by the president's side for almost that entire, I guess it was 13 days um, and and was a fly on the wall, was giving advice in the corner. I don't want to pretend that she was a foreign policy advisor, mm-hmm. but she was very much she was a close observer of people. And that was a that was a huge asset for him. Yeah. And, and a lot of these things are, are, are commonplace in a sense in, in the modern uh, first lady, the, the way a modern first lady approaches the job. But it was really groundbreaking and unique that that, that she was doing all of this and being so involved at that time. Well, it was. And she very early, I think it was in weeks of the, that he came to the White House, she told him she was going to sit in on cabinet meetings. <laughs> and it made big news in Washington because that wasn't something first ladies had done before. But she explained it very simply. She said, well, she said, I told Jimmy that I didn't want to make him have to go over with me everything that had happened during the day. And I thought if I just sat in the meeting, <laughs> I could hear it myself. And she did do that for a while. It didn't it didn't go on. Forever. But Scott, I do have to say the legacy that she leaves, it's not only her time in the White House and her closeness to him, but it's it's the work she did for many, many years around mental health, mm-hmm. advocacy for mental health, um, re- trying to reduce the stigma around mental health and also for, for caregivers. She was a huge advocate of people who take care of those who can't take care of themselves. We've got about a minute here, but I wanted to ask you about the personal side. I know you interviewed the Carters when they hit 75 years of marriage. What stood out to you about their partnership and relationship? Well, it was just, it was, it was something I will never forget. We, we spoke with each other just a block or so down the street from their home at this quaint little inn that she had actually helped to decorate. And when I asked her what the secret 
to their to their 75 years was she said and i don't this isn't an exact quote but she said we give each other space which is so interesting given <laughs> how close they are yeah. that she that was the first thing she said but then she of course went on to say we do things together we go birding we go fly fishing and mm-hmm. so forth and so on but she she was very much her own person at the mm-hmm. same time she was a partner for him that is journalist Judy Woodruff remembering first lady Rosalind Carter who died today at age 96 thank you so much for joining us thank you scott Rush- Russia's invasion of Ukraine has driven apart two countries that used to be close, but many Russians opposed the war, which was launched by Russian President Vladimir Putin. NPR's Philip Reeves recently visited Latvia, a Baltic nation that borders Russia, and found that some Russians are now reaching out to Ukrainians in unexpected ways. In a forest near the Baltic Sea, a man is talking to a little girl about birds. He uses his mobile phone to show her which ones to listen out for. The girl's eyes shine. The man is Russian. The girl is from Ukraine. Both are here in a foreign land because of the war that his country has launched against hers. This bird-watching trip is for Ukrainian refugees. The man's one of a handful of Russian volunteers. We're in a national park near the Latvian capital, Riga. There are white-tailed eagles around here, and in the nearby marshes and lagoons, coots and tufted ducks. The group spots a blue tit. They're delighted because it's blue and yellow, like the Ukrainian flag. My name is Vera, Vera, and Ukrainian version is Vera. Vera is a speech therapist from the Ukrainian city of Odessa. She's asked NPR not to broadcast her full name for safety reasons. Vera finds days out like this really helpful. It's very important for our lives to forget about the war just for a few minutes, a few hours. Vera moved to Latvia over a year ago to escape the war. Her mum, dad and grandfather stayed behind. Sometimes get nervous and thinking about this. It's very important to get uh, some messages from my family. It's not good for our living, for our lives. The presence of Russian volunteers doesn't bother her. They're trying to help, she says. Yet, as a Ukrainian, she does worry generally about fraternizing with Russians in Latvia. Because we don't know what are they thinking about this. Can they support us or maybe they support their country? It's very hard and we don't want to be in bad situation and have some problems. So you're careful when you meet Russians? We're careful, of course. This day trip is organized by a Latvian charity called Common Ground. Common Ground was created by local activists right after the war started to help Ukrainian refugees integrate by providing advice and activities. Sergei Lotharov, a research scientist from Moscow, is among the volunteers. I know that I cannot influence the general situation with the war, but I know that I can do something to overcome the consequences for this or that person. Lotharov moved to Latvia last year with his wife. She's a journalist. Journalists who don't tow the Kremlin's line risk being jailed. Many have moved here. Lotharov's horrified by Putin's invasion. I'm quite sure that we cannot solve political and other problems by killing people. Lotharov feels helping Ukrainians is something he needs to do. I think it's important for me, yes, and for my soul, for my 
in their balance. <laughs> it's not easy. Latvia is a former Soviet republic. There's always been some hostility towards Russians. Now it's stronger. This is an online video of a summer picnic that Common Ground organized for Ukrainians to celebrate their Independence Day. That man is angry about the presence of a London-based Russian businessman, a prominent Putin critic who sponsored the barbecue. The Ukrainian embassy also objected to the picnic. It said it was against Russian citizens taking part in any events held for Ukrainians or in any actions aimed at reconciliation. Common Ground's Latvian director, Ines Dabula, begs to differ. I believe that we need to support those Russians who are willing to live and value democratic standards and want to live in a normal society. Dabula says she understands why some Ukrainians object, yet she intends to continue including Russians who oppose Putin's war. Because if we unite all together, or if we find a way how we support Russian opposition in Russia, it's way better. Back in the forest, the bird watchers wrap up their day, also with a picnic and a group photo. Days like this give you the sense that you're not alone, says Anna Tian, who's Ukrainian. As for the Russians who are here, I reckon you should judge people by their actions, she says, not by their passport. Philip Reeves, NPR News, in the Kemeny National Park, Latvia. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR, and we are certainly glad that you are. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. WBUR supporters include The Lyric Stage with Ken Ludwig's The Games Afoot, directed by Fred Sullivan Jr. Slapstick and hilarity ensues amid murder and mayhem in the home of a celebrated actor famous for his Sherlock Holmes portrayal. You'll be laughing and guessing until the end of this memorable multi-generational holiday outing for all through December 17th, LyricStage.com. If you're taking a road trip this fall, use The Drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live. Or tap on WBUR app to rewind shows and play them back. Download the app for free before you hit the road. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter has died at the age of 96. The Carter Center says she died at home in Georgia today, surrounded by her family. She'd been dealing with health issues and dementia and had just entered hospice care. Her husband, former President Jimmy Carter, survives her. He is 99 and also in hospice care. In India, rescue efforts for 41 construction workers who have been trapped in a collapsed tunnel for eight days continue. They were trapped after a landslide caused a portion of that tunnel to collapse. And at the weekend box office, the Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes prequel took the top spot with an estimated $44 million in ticket sales. The Lionsgate film took in $98 million globally. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Activist and Pope, historically, they're not two words that go together, but they have over the past decade, especially when it comes to climate change. Pope Francis has made climate and the environment a central focus of his papacy. The first big moment came in 2015. Francis describes the earth as mistreated and abused and urges everyone, individuals, families, local communities, nations, and the international community to listen to its groans. That was NPR's Sylvia Pajoli back in 2015, reporting on the release of Laudato Si, a major papal document called an encyclical where Francis urged the world to take climate change seriously and to cut back on material waste and consumption-centered lifestyles. Last month, he revisited the topic, issuing a new major writing called Laudate Deum. Over the intervening eight years, the world has gotten hotter, and big climate solutions have failed to fully materialize. So it was notable how much the Pope's tone had shifted. This document was much more scathing. Christiana Zenner is a professor at Fordham University who studied the Pope's writings on climate change. She says the latest document reflects Francis's growing frustration. In the 2015 bigger document, Let Auto See, there was a lot more reflective, rhapsodic, and almost devotional language. In this document, 2023, Laudate Deum, there is pointed ethical diagnosis and critique of misunderstandings and willful ignorance. And that sense of urgency isn't just in writing. Pope Francis has announced his plans to attend COP28, the upcoming United Nations Climate Summit, That brings together leaders across the globe to put together concrete plans to deal with climate change. So for today's Sunday cover story, we've just experienced the hottest summer on record. With extreme weather catastrophes around the globe, the leader of the Catholic Church is taking an even bigger role in climate activism. What does he hope to achieve and how will his actions fit into his broader legacy? Pope Francis's latest document is as much a political writing as it is a moral one. It engages with climate denial. It also takes the powerful to task for choosing wealth over saving the lives impacted by climate change. Zenner says this sharper tone is much more clear about who's at fault and who needs to make immediate changes. This document is a doubling down and an intensification of some of the rhetoric that was nascently present in Laudato Si, but has been amplified in substantial ways in Laudato Deum. So whereas Laudato Si was broad-based in very significant ways. Laudate Deum is shorter, it's focused, it's pithier, it's crankier, and it is focusing in on climate change in particular. Now we know that climate change, climate crises, these have many different kinds of vectors, water, food security, migration, and so forth. And so those topics also appear in this document. But the pointedness of this document being about climate change in particular, 
the veracity of anthropogenic climate change linked to fossil fuel extraction and combustion, the complicity of contemporary economic paradigms and modes of power in perpetuating that dynamic, and the disproportionate burden on the poor and vulnerable while rich nations continue to overconsume and do nothing. That is really the heart of this message. And the, the way that it is centralized and the way that it is absolutely unrelenting is distinctive. Yeah. And I think that's true not only in, in relation to Pope Francis and his own writings, but also in relation to pretty much any document at this level of authority from the Catholic Church. Yeah. So we are talking about this latest document in the context of Pope Francis making the decision to personally go to the next big climate summit, the next big COP in a couple of weeks. I want to ask you about that choice, but first, can you tell me just how critical the Pope is of world leaders, Western leaders in particular, in this latest document? The Pope in this document thinks that almost everything hinges on the success of the upcoming COP meeting, which is partly why he's going there. It's partly why he released this document. And it's partly why in this document, he is hypercritical of Western developed, hyperdeveloped nations in particular, who in his view have become complacent and not lived up to the responsibility that is properly theirs on the world stage for leading on climate remediation and all sorts of related questions. Um, you know, I, it is no accident how this document is constructed. He starts out by citing the U.S. bishops on climate change, uh, and that's a that's a brilliantly underhanded move in some ways, brilliantly rhetorical move, because he then turns back at the end of the encyclical to say, you know, consumption, overconsumption in particular, is most pronounced in the United States. And so in paragraph 72, he says, if we consider that emissions per individual in the United States are about two times greater than those of individuals living in China and seven times greater than the average of the poorest countries, we can see, and he goes on to talk about critiques of Western consuming lifestyles. So there's this kind of parabolic beginning and return to the question of how climate change is framed in the West and the failure of leadership to really address these questions. After reading through this and studying this, were you surprised or not surprised that Pope Francis has decided he's going to not only travel to the COP in a few weeks, but he's going to stay there for several days? He's going to make himself heavily involved in this conference. I'm not necessarily surprised, but I'm delighted. And I think it indicates that the Pope is willing to put his actions where his words are. You know, as Greta Thunberg said a number of years ago, blah, blah, blah. So there's the risk that leaders in positions of power will say the thing, but not do anything about it. And so in a way, Pope Francis in Laudate Deum is echoing her critique, but he's also going to the proceedings and hopefully his very physical presence there will be a reminder that justice, accountability, to people worldwide and the flourishing of the earth now and in the future, um, as well as questions of poverty and the common good are in fact central. That was Christiana Zenner, a professor of theology, science, and ethics at Fordham University. There's been a lot of buzz over Pope Francis's attendance at the upcoming climate summit, 
What does he hope to achieve? I think he's hoping that this will kind of elevate what he has already said and been saying for many years, um, but with a, with a personal appearance in Dubai. Nicole Winfield is the Vatican correspondent for the Associated Press. She says this isn't the first time the Pope has waded into real-world diplomacy. He has been very much on the world stage. He's had envoys going to Moscow and Kiev. You know, he's trying to um, do what he can on that war. He's obviously desperately concerned about the situation in the Holy Land. Early on in his papacy, he and the Vatican helped negotiate, you know, the breakthrough agreement uh, between the United States and Cuba that led to the detente. But in terms of actual outcomes, there's not a lot there. But he does bring to the table the moral authority of the papacy. Francis is about to turn 87. He's now more than a decade into his papacy. And Winfield says climate is a key part of his legacy. It is by far one of the most, if not the most, critical issue for him. And it's because he sees this as a very holistic issue. For him, this brings in issues of poverty, migration, war and peace. And when he addresses it, he addresses it from many different points of view and angles that shows that everything is interconnected. Um, And so for him, it's everything that matters right now can be pulled together and, and looked at through the prism of the environment and climate change. That's Nicole Winfield, who covers the Vatican for the Associated Press. Pope Francis hopes that by attending the COP28 climate summit, he can persuade world leaders into immediate action to address climate change. Can a high-profile pressure campaign like that work? We asked a journalist who covered several cops. It's my co-host, Ari Shapiro. Hey, Ari. Good to be on your show. So you've been to the big climate summit a couple years ago in Glasgow, Scotland, Mm -hmm. and you were at the one in 2015 that really produced the biggest outcome uh, in recent memory, and that was the Paris summit. Yeah. Generally speaking, for these big UN uh, summits, how much of the outcome is kind of baked in going in? How much do the leaders kind of know what they're going to end this conference with? The two conferences that I attended, it was very, very uncertain up until the last minute. Like we were talking to negotiators from the U.S. and other countries, and they genuinely didn't know until the very end. And that's true of the big consensus agreement that hopefully comes out of the final negotiation. And it's also true of some of the smaller things that happen on the sideline. So, yeah, there's a lot of kind of formal pomp and circumstance, predetermined stuff that goes on. But there are also real negotiations where the outcome is not clear. So generally speaking, from your experience, it seems like a world leader with moral authority like Pope Francis saying, I'm going to show up, I'm going to spend several days at this conference, and I'm going to try to pressure people to come together with a stronger deal. That's the type of thing that could actually affect the outcome. Who's to say what will make the difference at the end of the day? The great thing about a cop is that it is one of the few times that the entire world comes together and focuses on climate. You know, you have world leaders from developing nations, from highly developed nations, countries that are typically at odds with one another, that are all trying to hash this out. And just having a venue where that happens, where somebody like Pope Francis who says, I want to talk to leaders from all over the world about climate, can go to that place and they're going to be there and that's what they're going to be focused on. That's unusual. Will it actually make a difference in what the outcome is? Nobody can say. But just having that venue is something that wouldn't exist if you didn't have these kinds of gatherings. That is our in-house cop expert, my co-host, Ari Shapiro. Thank you so much. (laughs) Hardly an expert, but you're very welcome.
rookie federal firefighters on the front lines of America's wildfire crisis only make about $15 an hour, and that's actually a higher wage than it used to be, thanks to a temporary pay bump approved by President Biden in 2021. Congress has been considering several measures making the raise permanent, but as NPR's Kirk Siegler reports, it looks like only a temporary extension can happen for now. In the wildland firefighting world right now, Congress's budget dysfunctions are a big distraction for firefighters, who Tom Dillon says are all talking about the future of their paychecks when they should be focusing on firefighting tactics and training and keeping communities safe. It's kind of a slap in the face. Dillon is a captain with the Alpine Hotshots, an elite federal crew based out of Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. The folks on Capitol Hill, some of them aren't even aware of who we are and what we do and that there is a federal wildland firefighting workforce. There are some 17,000 federal wildland firefighters. Most work for the U.S. Forest Service and start at about $34,000 a year if you're lucky enough to not be seasonal. For the last two years, most saw a temporary $20,000 pay increase. Firefighters like Mike Alba from the Los Padres National Forest in California considered it a lifeline. For myself, I'm able to spend time with my kids. More, I'm able to take them on a vacation. Now that the U.S. House narrowly averted another government shutdown, Alba will likely keep his higher pay until early January. Morale is low. Three guys on his engine alone have quit for better pay and benefits in nearby L.A. or Cal Fire, and he doesn't blame them. They give us a little bit of taste, like, hey, you know, what? we got you. Here you go. We're giving you incentive. We want you guys to stay. And now it's, oh, you know, we, we might not give it to you now. It might not pass. It's like, come on. It's like, we're, we're worth it. You know, we are worth the squeeze. The union representing federal employees is warning that based on its surveys, at least 30 percent of the federal force could quit if pay isn't permanently boosted. Meanwhile, climate and forest management issues are only making wildfires more severe and deadly. In Colorado, Tom Dillon says the budget impasse is already affecting recruitment for next year. They are looking for things like work-life balance. They are looking for things like time off. Um, They are looking to not live in vans any longer. The firefighters call the latest budget deal a Band-Aid. A bigger bill making the pay bumps permanent and adding benefits for firefighters has gone nowhere for well over a year. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. This is NPR. The Israeli military says it has inflicted heavy losses on Hamas and its air and ground operations in the Gaza Strip. Its strikes have killed scores of civilians as well. Gaza health officials say more than 12,200 have been killed. Israel's military response came after the October 7th Hamas attack, and so far the Israeli ground operation has focused largely on northern Gaza after Israel ordered hundreds of thousands of northern residents to go to the south. NPR's Peter Kenyon has been speaking with Israeli military and political analysts about what could lie ahead and has this report. 
Michael Milstein served in the Israeli military until 2019, including a stint as head of the Palestinian Department in military intelligence. I reached him via WhatsApp as he was preparing to rejoin his unit. He's one of the thousands of reservists called back to active duty. He says Israelis should be proud of the way the military bounced back after failing to anticipate the attack, inflicting what he calls severe damage on Hamas and sharply reducing the group's fighting force. And the many, it seems thousands, of terrorists were killed during the uh, battles inside Gaza City and in the northern parts of Gaza. Milstein adds, however, that this should only be seen as a case of so far so good. But here is my basic reservation. First of all, all the southern parts of uh, Gaza Strip are still under the control of Hamas. And second, all the military and even the political and the civil infrastructures of Hamas, mainly in the cities of Rafah and Khan Yunes, they still exist and they are quite active. Gaza officials say most of those killed were women and children. Milstein says that as Israel tries to disarm Hamas and render it powerless to threaten Israeli security, it's going to face some new problems. He notes that before Israeli forces moved into the northern Gaza Strip, it ordered civilians to evacuate to the south, and hundreds of thousands of them did. When it turns its attention to Khan Yunus and Rafah and other parts of southern Gaza, Milstein wonders if it will order all those evacuees, plus all the people already living in the south, to make the reverse trek and head north. That, he says, would be problematic, to say the least. But the problem is that in the northern parts, right now, there are no infrastructures, no serious civil services. So I do assess that there's going to be a problem. I do think that all the uh, international agencies that supply the refugees uh, water and food and electricity will have to work much more in order to supply them uh, their needs. Palestinians in Gaza are already suffering severely. There's a lack of safe drinking water, food shortages, and chronic power outages. Plus, hospitals struggling to care for tens of thousands of wounded people, according to Gaza health officials. Analyst Reuven Hazan, professor of political science at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, says in his view, evacuating people from southern Gaza to the north at this point is probably untenable. And he doesn't see how the military can repeat the massive aerial bombardment that preceded the ground operation in northern Gaza in the now even more overcrowded southern part of the Strip. There are two things that cannot be done. Uh, one is we can't really move everybody back up north. There's nowhere to really go to. And second, the troops moved in up north after we had pummeled the area. And you can't do that after telling everybody to move down south. From what we hear from the military, the hostages are being held down south. So at some point, we're going to have to go there. How we do it, God help us. If these analysts are correct, it suggests that the Israel-Hamas conflict could get worse, possibly much worse, before it's over. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Glad you're with us. Hope you'll stay with us. The New Yorker Radio Hour is next, and the State Department's Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Bundle up if you're going to be out late tonight or overnight. A chance of an isolated shower with temperatures dropping to the 30s. 
Sunny, upper 30s tomorrow, mostly sunny, low 40s on Tuesday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com And the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org slash events. Lawyers in one of Trump's four criminal trials are due in a federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. tomorrow to argue that a gag order entered in the election interference case is unconstitutional and that Trump needs to be able to defend himself as he campaigns. And in California, an elevated portion of the I-10 freeway near downtown Los Angeles is set to reopen by tomorrow after a fire closed one of the busiest highways in the country. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow, and back with me is NPR's Rachel Martin for another conversation in her Enlighten Me series. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Scott. So I understand that one of your recent conversations was so good (laughs) that you are airing part two, a sequel, a (laughs) follow-up. That is right. Why have one when you can have two? So a few weeks ago, we aired this conversation that I had with comedian and podcaster Duncan Trussell. That was the really powerful conversation about his talks with his mom as she was dying. Yeah, she was a psychiatrist. She was someone who had thought a lot about spiritual transcendent issues over a lifetime. And I wanted to talk with Duncan about what he gleaned from her, what kind of wisdom he took away from those conversations in particular. I realized she's telling me things that she knew I would want to hear later. Yeah. And that she knew I wasn't hearing now. Yeah. And because she knew I would listen to it later. So I'm so grateful to her for that. So that conversation was about what Duncan had learned from his mom and about grief. This time, we are pivoting, and the focus of this conversation is about the wisdom that Duncan himself has to share with all of us. All right, let's give it a listen. From what I know of you, you're definitely a person who likes to swim in the existential goo, you know? I do. When did that start for you? I mean, did you come out of the womb that way? No, I don't think so. I don't remember. You know, if I meditated more, maybe I could answer that question. But I always gravitated towards it. 
for some reason. So I've always loved it. You know, I was, I was raised as an Episcopalian and mm -hmm. as a kid, I really loved that and felt very connected to God and Jesus. And then after, well, after my mom's divorce, Hmm. She, this was during the new age movement so she had like a series of new age boyfriends Birkenstocks didn't like my fake guns and I I'm, obviously like you don't like your mom's boyfriend if you do like what's wrong with right, you how, wrong how with you. could you possibly like the guy who's walking out of your mom's bedroom in the morning <laughs> uh but what was wonderful about that is that got my mom interested in some esoteric philosophies and which meant there were books laying about and uh -huh. so you know i did the thing everyone does i just sort of dabbled with it and went in and out of it and um you know i remember my mom's breaking up with a boyfriend who introduced us to all this stuff he's on the back porch i think she just dumped him and i'm sitting back there he's smoking a cigarette he looks at me and he's like you know the stuff that we all talk about one day you're actually gonna need it. One day you'll need it. Right now you just think it's cool, hmm. but one day you'll need it. And yeah, and then my mom died way down the line. I mean, not that day, like years and years later. That would have <laughs> been be weird. Really weird. Yeah. And then that's when I, I remembered him saying that. And yeah. it's cause suddenly it gets real. I got testicular cancer, then it gets real. Now all of a sudden it isn't, you realize like there is a, um, a real, need for some kind of transcendent structure some something outside of the world to connect to when you're you know in a tsunami of unfortunate events and and so then it then it got real for me what do you think about reincarnation oh for sure I mean, for sure, I, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, subjectively, I'm, I'm not going to get any debates with anybody <laughs> about it. You will win. I have the most cynical, materialist, existentialist, intellectual friends. I try to bring this stuff up with them, and they destroy any argument I have. And I like that. It's like, all right, I don't know. I'll go. You know, all I can say is this is my fantasy. I, 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 I think that people who are nihilistic materialist atheists don't realize that they believe in heaven too their heaven is like the heaven of pure absolute perfect annihilation who was it huh. the one who hemlock uh, socrates was that socrates or played socrates i think socrates okay this apology of socrates he, he said something along the lines of if there's nothing after this and it's like the deepest sleep then you have given me the greatest gift anyone could give anyone if there is something after this, I'm going to keep doing the thing that you're giving me hemlock for. So I win no matter what. <laughs> it's really a great, great, great. Uh, he did a good job. He's well, he was pretty smart, but um, <laughs> he was OK. I mean, I guess <laughs> he had some good ideas. But yeah, so I think that, yes, I, 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 I completely believe in reincarnation. I feel like a, a kind of certainty about it. And um, yeah, I don't have it. I don't really have any part of me anymore that doesn't believe that. Do you, how far does the fantasy extend? I mean, do you, does it get specific? Do you have a preference for the next go round? Like plant, animal, human? 
because I'm um, the kind of person who thinks I want to come back as something more interesting than a human being. But like if what? it really gets down to brass tacks, I don't. Like, I just want to be a person who can still be in the peripheral life of, like, my loved ones. I, I yeah. Mean, you know? Like, that's sure. not very interesting. Like, I'd like to be a person who's like, I'm going to be the tree or I want to be a bird. And I don't want to be. Who wants things. to be a tree? <laughs> Are you kidding? You want to be some immobile thing that people use as firewood? No, thanks. <laughs> Passing on the tree. But they're supposed to be old and wise and like, I don't know. Yeah, well, they, they might be old and wise, but there's not much they could do. And some right. lumbered person decides to use them for their table. I'm not dissing trees. My God, I wish they could attack. If trees could attack, we'd live in a much more beautiful world. The point is, uh, I think that I like the Buddhist emphasis on, okay, what we need to worry about is right now. Because, and I've heard something on the lines of, if, if you want to know what your next incarnation is going to be, look at your incarnation now, and that will inform you where you're headed. In what and way? What does that mean? Momentum. So it's oh. like the, we're talking about the reaction. So uh, when those moments where the thing comes out of you that you've been working on, and then suddenly there it is again, blah, the jack in the box comes out in traffic, in a relationship, whatever your particular th scary defense mechanism Trigger. thing is, yeah. mm -hmm. triggered. This is what will carry you into the next life. And you're going to react to the scary things there the way you react to scary things here. You're probably going to get scared. Then you're going to get angry. Then you're going to just do the exact same thing that has been getting you in all the samsaric loops you've been getting in here. You know, I used to be like, I guess I'm just always getting in this relationship. You know, wow, this is mysterious. Why does the same exact relationship keep happening to me? You know, nothing to do with me. Just like Bermuda Triangle stuff. You know, it's like some kind of, what is it? This is, it's, you know, Mercury must be in retrograde every time I get in a relationship. You know, so if you haven't started unraveling that loop, the loop will repeat and that loop will inform your next incarnation. And so that's, I think, a way to sort of wrap your head around it. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter because you reincarnate in this life. That's what you need to worry about is your next incarnation here. Wait, Based what does that mean? Well, you reincarnate. Just like change. Just, just, I mean, not 100%. just change, but big change. I used to wear trench coats and listen to the Smiths. <laughs> I was a goth. I just, and you know what I mean? I was just sour when I was in high yeah. school and just, uh, I went through that phase. It, that me is still in me. Oh God, I'll listen to Smith sometimes like, this is amazing. But that level of sort of like LARPing as LARPing, sort, that's a great know? word. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's, it, that's, I'm not, I'm not doing that LARP anymore. I'm doing a new LARP now. And so, <laughs> That's what I, I think that might as well be reincarnation. I mean, physically, yeah. I'm different. Yeah. Mentally, I'm different. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's different now. So that's what I mean. You reincarnate, you know, in, in, over and over again here. The cycle is happening here. It just keeps going after you die. Your mom points out in that interview, and forgive me if I'm not quoting her right, but 
she said something to the effect of any kind of spiritual life, the only point of a spiritual life is to just learn how to live in reality. Yeah. So it's just, how is this helping me just be a person in the world? Yeah. Very, very, like, it reminds me a little bit of Zen, just very like, you know, no BS, like, let's, you know, this is what's happening. This is what's happening here, right? In this place. And then it's like, uh, okay. You know, you come to someone's house and they have a nice couch. Yeah. And they've put plastic over the couch. You've ever seen that? It's the wildest thing. Like if they have People, a pet? They don't want to to, to soil their couch that, with right, their right. stranger's oils Touch. or whatever yes. they're worried about. So they cover it in plastic and now it's the it could be the best couch on earth. But now it's the worst couch because it's covered in like plastic it's venting it smells weird in the in the winter it, like the plastic is like kind of sort of melting you're breathing in toxic fumes right. and so, it's not living up to its couchiness potential like it's it could it, be the best couch it could be the best couch. Like velvet or some nice leather but no all you're feeling is plastic so i think this is what my mom was talking about and what the invitation is from a lot of these people is you've put plastic on you and it's keeping you from a direct encounter with reality. And you think it's protecting you. It's not. Here you are in this beautiful, powerful, heartbreaking, unbearably heartbreaking reality. Like mm -hmm. this is the real thing. You took human birth. In Buddhism, there's more gods than there are humans. Like you have taken human birth and you are here. And, and, and this isn't like you're not in the driveway. Like you're in the forge, like this is it. So learning how to deconstruct, dissolve, remove, or allow the plastic to exist, but simultaneously allow your heart to, to touch what's happening now as it is, whatever your method may be, is so wonderful because you get to experience this world that we're in uh, as it is, and, and one of the, I think, great delights that everyone realizes is you were running away from the best couch. Okay, the ant analogy is ruined. <laughs> what I'm trying to, the couch has been chasing you. This is like a story I tell my kid. The couch, don't, don't, don't run away from your nice couch. Don't run from your couch. It's so easy not to extend the awkward uh, metaphor, but is your, so is your couch covered in plastic are you the couch you want to be in the world no. in the apartment of your uh, life no. i'm right now learning how to shake hands with the plastic i guess <laughs> is the way you put it like to because i you know i love um like pima children she says in her book the wisdom of no escape people will start some meditation practice wanting to be better to be a better person be a better parent be a better this be a better that and she says, that's starting your practice off with an aggression against yourself. You, you know what I mean? This, this as you are thing that's been carrying you to the point of getting a Pima Chodron book or this or that. Pima Chodron, I, I just have to say this. Pima Chodron is a, a renowned Buddhist scholar and monk. Yeah. Yes. Great teacher. And, you know, it got you to Pima Chodron. It got you to whatever your particular, you know, practice is. So, and then suddenly you're like, all right, see you later. Like get out of here thing that has sustained me protected me get out of here that's the aggressive part You're, and, and it, sh it shows up in psychedelic 
world sometimes. You know, people come back from the whatever the particular experience they had and they're like, I shattered my ego. It's like, why are you being so mean to yourself? Like you shattered mm. your, it's not cool. It's like, that's you too. The plastic is you and the the sort of, the I guess the method that I, I've been taught is, is more like non-judgmental awareness. Mm-hmm. Allow it to be th- this thing. So the ego death is. is not a thing for you. That's like, feels violent. People talk about needing to kill your ego in order to be. Yeah. So shake hands with it. Uh, you know, uh, touch it. Don't be afraid. Uh, and don't, like, reject it. You've been, you know, and and then maybe something will begin to, like, shift uh, over time. That was comedian and podcast host Duncan Trussell speaking with Rachel Martin for her Enlighten Me series. If you'd like to listen to the first part of their conversation, which I highly recommend, you can find that by going to npr.org and searching for Enlighten Me. FTX was one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges, and when it collapsed about a year ago, customers lost billions of dollars. Since then, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty of misusing that money. I thought to myself, wow, the justice system actually did work in this instance, and, you know, that the guilty parties got their comeuppance. Hear what that verdict meant to the people whose lives were upended by the company's collapse on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's tomorrow morning.